And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. If you've ever talked to people about the gospel, you've probably gotten the question at one time or another, is God fair to judge those who have never heard about Jesus Christ? Will he, in fact, send them to hell because they did not believe in Jesus when they never even had a chance to hear of him? Another version of the question is this, won't those who have done the best that they could do, do, won't they get into heaven? Now, verses 12 through 16, what, what, what Tyler read for us just a couple minutes ago, Paul is establishing the point, actually, of verse 11, for there is no impartiality with God. God will judge everyone with perfect justice. He can do no other. Paul is anticipating a Jewish objection Something like this. But, but surely God will treat us, the Jews, more favorably than the pagan Gentiles. After all, we know God's ways as revealed in His law, and they don't. Or perhaps a Gentile would object, it's not fair for God to judge me for disobeying a, a standard that I didn't even know existed. I've done the best that I could with what I knew. God won't judge me, will He? Paul shows us that God will impartially judge everyone for sinning against the light that they were given. Now, his line of reasoning goes like this. The Gentiles, they sinned without the law, so they're going to perish without the law. While the Jews sinned under the law, so he will be judged by the law. In other words, as verse 6 stated, God will render to each person according to his deeds. Now, hearing the law isn't good enough. You must be a doer of the law. And, all the law. and although the Gentiles did not have the law, they all have an inner sense of right and wrong. And although occasionally they, occasionally they may do what is right, uh, they all have sinned against what they know to be right. Their consciences and their thoughts convict them of their guilt. But whatever they may think of themselves, the day is coming when God will judge not only outward deeds, but also the secrets of men through Jesus Christ in accordance with the gospel. To sum up, Paul is saying, since God will impartially judge everyone for sinning against what they know to be right, everyone is guilty, and thus everyone needs the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we never grow out of the gospel. There's never a time when we, when we are not in need of its truth, Father, that, that we can do nothing to commend ourselves to you outside of Jesus Christ in us. So, Father, I pray that day after day, moment by moment, we would lean on the gospel and what has been accomplished in it. And we thank you for it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. These verses, they're not easy to interpret, so even godly scholars different on, differ on a couple uh, different issues. There are two main views going back to verses 6 through 11, what we looked at last week. One camp argues that verses 7, 10, and 13 are hypothetical. That is to say, if anyone actually could persevere in doing good and obeying the law, he would be saved by his obedience, but no one is able to do it. So no one can be justified by keeping God's law. Justification is only through faith in Christ apart from works. Now, uh, the other camp says, true, totally true. 
But genuine saving faith always results in a life of obedience to God's Word. Remember we looked last week at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And verse 10 talks about the works that God has preordained for us to be involved in as a result of our relationship with Jesus. We are not saved on the basis of our good deeds, but our good deeds necessarily show the validity of our faith. So while we are saved by faith alone, we will be judged by our works. Because this is the consistent teaching of all Scripture, and we looked at that a lot last week, Paul is not talking here about something hypothetical. He's showing that God's impartial judgment of all people will be based on their works. Those who are doers of God's Word will be acquitted and go to heaven, and those who disobey God's Word will be condemned and go to hell. Now, at this point, Paul is not looking at how a person enters into that life of obedience, but rather at the results of that life. As we saw last time and we'll see again today, we can only live in obedience to God when we've experienced a new birth through faith in Christ. That's the only thing that really leads to good deeds. So verse 13 is not talking about sinless perfection, but rather about direction, Those who live on the path of obedience to God's Word are those who will be justified at the final judgment. So I want to trace Paul's argument here verse by verse. Verse by verse. Uh, Number one, God will judge everyone based on the light that they were given. This is verse 12. Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, the four at the beginning of that verse there shows that Paul is explaining verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. Verse 12 simply means that God will judge each person according to the light that he was given. The Gentiles who did not have the law will be judged apart from the law. The Jews who who did receive God's law will be judged by that very law. But I want you to note something here. Both groups have sinned. And both groups will be judged for their sin. The Gentiles who sinned without the law will perish. That's a term that refers to eternal condemnation. Now, we have to wait till we get to verses 14 and 15 to answer the question, how could the Gentiles be guilty of a sin that they didn't have any standard of God's law, if they didn't have any standard of God's law to live by? But the point of verse 12 is that God will judge every person, Jew or Gentile, according to their response to the light that they have received. So in this way, God cannot be charged with partiality. Now, Jesus taught the same thing in a passage that it will stretch your brain a little bit. In Matthew uh, chapter 11, it's called, if, if your Bible has paragraph headers, it's probably called, Woe to the Cities. And beginning in verse 20, Jesus says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Did you see that? More tolerable on the day of judgment? Then he says, and you, Capernaum, why did he pick on Capernaum? Capernaum was his home base of his ministry. 
He probably did more miracles there around Capernaum than anywhere else. He says, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable, there's that phrase again, more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, Jesus is saying that there will be degrees of punishment in hell. And it's based on the amount of light that a person has rejected. Those who witnessed Jesus' miracles and yet rejected Him, they're going to be judged more harshly than those in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom who never heard about Jesus. Now, what is kind of mind-stretching is that Jesus knew that the pagans in those cities would have responded positively if they had witnessed Jesus' miracles. And in the case of Sodom, he easily could have had the angels uh, who went there to destroy the city perform enough miracles to bring them to faith. But he didn't do that. Sodom did not repent and was judged on the basis of the light that they rejected they will spend eternity in hell for their sins. But their judgment is going to be lighter than that of the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum who witnessed Jesus' miracles firsthand, eyewitnesses, and still rejected Him. But don't this, let this be just a fascinating brain teaser without applying it. How much light have you received? I've talked about this before. This is one of the, the things that I'm kind of torn between because, honestly, I can't speak for anybody in here uh, concerning your salvation. Paul tells us that nobody knows the spirit of the man but the man and the spirit of God. So there's people sitting out here who think that you're going to go to heaven. And each week as we share some of the gospel with you, the longer you reject it, the worse it's going to be for you. In other words, you are adding to your judgment by not responding to the gospel. So again, how much light have you received? Have you responded to the light that you have received by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? If not, what kind of judgment will you face when you stand before God? Well, number two, hearing the law alone does not justify anyone before God. Only doers of the law will be justified. James tells us the same thing. Paul says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul again uses the word for to show that he's explaining or proving what he has just said. The Jews boasted in having God's law. They heard it read every week in their synagogues. But Paul says, hearing is not enough. Hearing the law doesn't put you in God's favor ahead of the Gentiles who have not ever heard the law. The issue is doing it, not just hearing it. Only those who do God's law will be acquitted or justified on Judgment Day. Now again, many commentators understand Paul here to be speaking hypothetically. 
in that no one is able to keep God's law perfectly or to earn salvation by good works. As Romans 3.20 says, this is a couple chapter or next chapter, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. That says it as plain as you can get it. Works of the law will never justify you. Paul's argument, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, is that we have all sinned. And thus, we all need God's saving grace through the gift of His Son who died to redeem sinners who simply trust in Him. No one can earn right standing before God by good works. However, while that is crystal clear, there are reasons to argue that Paul is not talking here about hypothetical, perfect obedience, which no one can do. We, we, we admit that. But rather, he's talking about a direction of obedience, which those who have born, been born of God's Spirit do practice consistently. Now, for one thing, this, this agrees with the uniform teaching of the Bible that God will judge everyone impartially by their works. That's what we looked at last week in quite a bit of detail. A person's works reveal the reality of his faith. Works are an in inevitable and, a, and an essential proof of saving faith. Now, Paul is not saying that a person earns justification by obedience. Rather, he is describing those who will be justified by God on judgment day. They are the doers of the law. They obey God's word as a way of life. Now, also, we have biblical example of those who are doers of the law or God's word. And just a few verses ahead of us, Romans 2, 26 and 27. Paul mentions the, the physically uncircumcised man, which makes them a Gentile, who keeps the requirements of the law. He goes in and on in verses 28 and 29 to specify that he's not talking about ob, uh, outward observance only, but rather obedience from the heart. He's describing Gentiles like us who have been saved by faith and now demonstrate their faith by obedience to God's word. In Romans chapter 8, verse 4, Paul says that through the cross, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, those who have trusted in Christ's death, they now walk by the Holy Spirit and thus fulfill God's law. All the way back in Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, Ezekiel, the Lord speaking through Ezekiel said, uh, I, I will take out their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. And it says, I will cause them to walk in my ways and they will be careful to observe my ordinances. <laughs> Built into the Christian life is the ability to keep the law, not on our own, but through the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 1, verse 6, it says of John the Baptist's parents. Do you remember them? John, uh, yeah, Zacharias and Elizabeth. It says they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. How'd you like to have that said about you? That's not too bad. This doesn't mean sinless perfection. And we know that's the case because Zechariah goes on in just a few more verses to sin by not believing what the angel said about, hey, you're going to have a son in your old age. He didn't believe and he was struck deaf as a result. 
nor does it mean that, that, that somehow they would, etern- they would earn eternal life by their blameless obedience. Rather, because they had trusted in God and received His mercy, they became what we would call consistent doers of the law. Their deeds proved that they would be justified on judgment day. So Paul's argument thus far is that God is not partial to the Jews by giving them the law because he will judge everyone based on the light that they were given. And uh, hearing the law alone does not justify anyone. We must be doers of the law. Well, number three, those who do not have God's law still have an inner sense of right and wrong that condemns them when they violate it. Here's what Paul says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. Get that? By nature. They they do what the law requires. Paul says they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts excuse or accuse or even excuse them. Now, again, some argue that Paul is referring here to saved Gentiles who obey the law and thus are justified. I think he brings up the Gentiles to show that his Jewish readers that having the law and occasionally obeying it is not enough. So verse 14 actually explains the first half of verse 12, all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. You see, even unsaved Gentiles have an inner sense of right and wrong. And sometimes they do what they know to be right, but they often disobey what they know to be right so that their conscience condemns them. They'll stand guilty before God on the day when He judges their secret sins, which is what He says in verse 16. Paul is not saying that the Gentiles instinctively know all of the stipulations of the Mosaic law. My goodness, no. Rather, he's pointing out the obvious fact that even pagans who have had no exposure to God's revealed law, they have a built-in sense of right and wrong that coincides with God's law. Now, he's not referring to the promise of the new covenant. That's, that's where God's law will be written on the heart of believers. We see that in Jeremiah 31, 33, and then repeated in Hebrews 8, 10. So yes, as believers, we now have God's law inscribed on our heart. That's not what he's talking about here. He's, when he says that the work of the law is written on their hearts, he probably means what the law does. Now, what does the law do? It teaches the difference between right and wrong. That's what law does. This is right. This is wrong. Okay? Paul is referring to the fact that almost all cultures believe that murder, rape, assault, stealing, etc. are wrong. Treating others as you want to be treated, obeying just laws, and loving your family, those are actually right things to do. And we know it instinctively. C.S. Lewis opens his argument in mere Christianity by showing how even pagans have this sense of right and wrong. They all who hold to a standard of behavior that they expect others to hold to as well. But there's a problem. (laughs) 
even though we all have this kind of built-in sense of right and wrong, we have all violated our own standards. And when we do, we justify it by various arguments. Oh, I know I shouldn't have treated him wrongly, but, you know, he had it coming. Uh, I know I shouldn't cheat on my taxes, but everyone else does it. Besides, the government just wastes so much money, they're not going to miss my little bit. So our conscience and our thoughts, they go back and forth, either condemning us or trying to defend us. And that's what Paul is describing. Now, the conscience is not an infallible guide, but we should never go against our conscience. It's not infallible in that it needs to be informed by Scripture, not just by what our culture may think is right or wrong or, or what we may instinctively feel is right or wrong. Our conscience must be trained and informed by the unchangeable standard of God's Word. But Paul's point is that every culture has standards of right and wrong that often coincide with God's law. And every person has a conscience that condemns him when he violates what he knows to be right. Now, to recap thus far, in answer to the objection that God's judgment is unfair because he's given the law to the Jews, Paul says, no, God will judge everyone by the light they have been given and sinned against. Hearing the law is not enough. It is the doers of the law who will be justified. With the Gentiles, not having the law is no excuse. They instinctively know what is right and wrong, and they have all violated what they know to be right as their consciences affirm. Well, finally, number four, on Judgment Day, God will judge the secrets of everyone through Christ Jesus according to Paul's gospel. He says, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The connection between verse 15 and 16 is that the present work of the conscience in either accusing or defending the sinner will reach its climax on the final day of judgment. That's when God will judge even the secrets of men by His righteous standards. Whether a person has God's law or not, he will stand guilty before God on that day. There are several things that we shouldn't miss here in verse 16. First, A, there is a certain day of judgment. God has fixed the day according to Acts 17, 31. If you believe that, well, you'd better be ready. If you don't believe it, that doesn't mean that it won't happen. Unless Jesus was a liar or simply mistaken, that day is coming. Well, second, B, on that day, God will judge the secrets of everyone. That's a scary thought, isn't it? <laughs> our thoughts are going to be revealed. God doesn't just look at our outward deeds. You remember when uh, Samuel was supposed to go anoint somebody from, uh, from the house of Jesse? And Eliab comes first, and he's a big man. He's, he's the oldest, and he's full-grown, good-looking, and Samuel's like, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And, and God is like, uh, no, it's not him, Samuel. Uh, like all men, you look at the exterior. I look at the heart. Right? That's what's going on here. Um, God just doesn't look at the outward deeds. That's kind of all we can see, isn't it? 
We can put on a pretty good show towards others. We can impress them with our, with our knowledge of the Bible or our prayers or just our simple religiosity, whatever it may be. But God knows every secret thought and every private sin that we do. He knows the hidden prideful moments even when we outwardly serve Him. He knows the lustful glance that no one else sees. He sees the seething anger in your heart even when you camouflage it. Nothing will escape His penetrating gaze on that day. Well, third, see, when God judges the secrets of men, it will be through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus made a rather out, astounding claim in Matthew, or excuse me, John 5. He says, not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find a clearer claim to deity than that. For Christ to sit in judgment on the secrets of men, He must have infinite knowledge. And only God can have that. Also, this means that if you have a picture in your mind of Jesus just being all loving and never judgmental, then you do not have the full biblical picture of Jesus. He describes himself as the judge of all. If you go over to Revelation 19, this is where he returns on a white horse to judge and to wage war. His eyes are a flame of fire. He's clothed, with, he's clothed with a robe that has been dipped in blood. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, which with he will strike down the nations. John says of him, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So if that isn't your image of Jesus, you need to change your thinking. Well, fourth, D, this final judgment is according to Paul's gospel. Now, what does gospel mean? Anybody? Good news. Literally, the word gospel means good news. At first glance, this doesn't sound like good news, does it? But if there is no judgment for all sin, then there's no need for a Savior. And thus, there's no need for any good news. The gospel doesn't offer you the option of going on in your sin or shrugging it off as if it will not come under judgment if you don't repent. Here's what Spurgeon says, with deep love to the souls of men, I bear witness to the truth that he who turns not with repentance and faith to Christ shall go away into punishment as everlasting as the life of the righteous. We need to understand the bad news of judgment in order to appreciate the good news of salvation through faith in Christ. Now, Paul calls it my gospel, both because he had personally owned it and he had defended it against critics who accused him of preaching grace to the neglect of good works. Paul is saying that the gospel that he preached was in complete harmony with the solemn truth that God will judge the secrets of men. He says, he will render to each person according to his deeds. Spurgeon, Spurgeon argues that if we do not preach the upcoming or the coming judgment and wrath of God, that we do not preach the gospel at all. 
We would be like a surgeon who didn't want to tell his patient that he was ill. He hoped to heal him without the patient even knowing that he was sick. So the doctor flatters him that all is well, and the man refuses the cure. Why? Because he doesn't even know he's sick. Such, doctor, such a doctor would be a murderer. Well, so are we. If we do not warn people about God's impartial, certain judgment of our every secret, and then point them to the good news that Christ offers forgiveness to repentant sinners as their only hope. Let's pray. Father, it really is about uh, Jesus and the gospel, that good news. Father, the bad news is we can do nothing to recommend ourselves to you. We stand guilty as charged before you uh, without any recourse except for the blood of Christ. So this morning, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Father, if there's anybody here that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they would be convicted and they would turn this morning in repentance from their sin and turn to you and trust Jesus Christ. Do it for, for your honor and for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as I said, there's probably plenty of people out here. Do you know, back in the, you know, I think it was the 90s, <laughs> um, uh, Billy Graham said that he suspected that no more than 25% of the people who actually sit in pews on Sunday morning have a relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus. That's, a, that's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? We all think we're doing fine because we're all in here together. He's not going to judge us like that. He's going to judge you asking you, what have you done with my son? That's going to be the question. What have you done with Jesus? Jesus himself said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you asked God to forgive you of your sins? He is the one who you've offended. David recognized that in Psalm uh, 51. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. What had he done? Committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. And yet he says, it's against you and you alone that I have sinned. Your sin has offended God. That sin is a separation. It's an eternal separation outside of Jesus Christ. Look at your own heart. If you were to die today and have to stand before God, what would you plead? Would it be Jesus or would you stand there scared to death? I expect we're all going to be a little bit scared. But only Jesus will give you any comfort whatsoever. He's the only one that's going to give you any forgiveness or uh, reconciliation with God. It's through Him. Now that occur occurs in the here and now, and it prepares you for that day when you will stand before God. David puts it like this, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? How many of you in here are sinless? And don't, don't think of some wise interpolation of, well, I belong to Christ, therefore I'm sinless. No. How many of you in here are sinless? Anybody? I'm going to get my hand down real quick just in case you think I'm not. No. We, we, if, if God should mark our sin, David's question is, who could stand? The answer is nobody except in Christ. I ask you to give your heart to Him this morning. If you're a believer, I hope that you'll understand that we never outgrow the gospel. 
we live in it, we breathe it. It's the only reason we can keep going. It's the, as we talked about last week, it's the only reason that we can persevere in good works. It's the gospel. I hope you're doing that day by day, living in, breathing in, existing in the gospel. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.